No one likes to feel stuck, especially by your cloud. But the IBM cloud is the most open and secure public cloud for business. It can manage all your apps and data anywhere. Smart loves problems. IBM, let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash flexible. Welcome to the Sporting Life with Jeremy Schaap. Over the next hour, NBA trainer Rob McClanahan describes the mindset of top athletes like Russell Westbrook. I gave him a Sunday off one time, and he, and he really wanted to work out on Sunday. I said, we can't go. You need a day off. We've been going hard for three weeks. He goes, all right, you're right, you're right. An hour later, I get a call from uh, a guy at the UCLA. He said, your boy's up here working out. I'm like, who? He said, Russell with his father. I'm like, oh, God. Plus, author Dave Jenneman explains how the baseball glove represents much more than it may seem. It really became a book about how a single item represented a lot of ideas America has about itself with regard to industry, with regard regard to ritual with masculinity and gender. It ended up being a book as much about what we think of ourselves as it was about a piece of equipment. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schaap. Welcome to another edition of The Sporting Life. Coming up later in the show, we'll be speaking to a man who is the trainer to the NBA's best players. But first, we start with a new memoir. And it is rare in its honesty and the way that it details what it takes to be an athlete and some of the things that can happen along the way. It's about jealousy and disappointment and failure, and it's very, sometimes painfully honest. It's Barry Zito's new book, Curveball, How I Discovered True Fulfillment After Chasing Fortune and Fame. Barry Zito, of course, the Cy Young Award-winning pitcher, for the Oakland A's, who signed a $126 million contract later with the San Francisco Giants, and whose career did not end up the way that he thought it would or many others thought it would. And it is a pleasure to welcome to the show Barry Zito. Barry, thank you for being with us. Jeremy, my pleasure. Barry, I mean, you talk about yourself. It, it's, I said rare. It's rare um, for someone to be able to open a vein the way you have here and speak so candidly about some of your own shortcomings and some of your own struggles. Um, what's it like now to have this book out in the world? You know, it's, it's, uh, I think at first it was a challenge to really say how deep into the, the darkness of myself am I going to go and expose. And the more I got into it and the, you know, the, as the writing process was evolving, I realized that, you know, it's a true test for me personally to see if I'm actually still trying to define myself, you know, by other people and, and how I'm seen by other people and the opinions, you know, of everyone around me, or am I defining myself by something greater, kind of higher than all of that? And I think that's, you know, that's ultimately what the book's about, but that was the challenge, you know, and, and I did expose a lot of the things that people probably don't know, you know, about what it takes and, and what it's like to be in the public eye, you know, public eye and such. You were brought up to be a baseball star, and your father was, as many parents of great athletes or great musicians or great actors, people in the world in which you have to perform, he was extremely involved, your father, to the point, um, as you say in your book, that you, you no longer, even when you were an adult, were thinking for yourself. How do you look back now at your childhood? Yeah, I think when I was in it, I wasn't totally aware. And obviously, as an adult, we can look back and through the wisdom and realize what was really happening. Um, 
but for me, you know, I was just like a kid in San Diego growing up, you know, humble, humble life. And my father was a former musician, but also a former talent manager. And so what I didn't realize until I wrote the book is that I was being raised by a man who was, you know, made it his job to garner, to garnish people for success, to, to train them on how to get to where they need to go. And of course, there was a lot of good that came from that and, you know, have financial freedom now and, and all these things. But there was a lot of bad, which was, you know, I, my own kind of intuition and, and gut instinct wasn't always trusted or even really factored in to the decisions that I made, even as a man, you know, as a major leaguer, my father was kind of telling me that he knew better and, mm. you know, I would do it his way. And, and that really hurt me in a lot of ways just for my personal growth. We're speaking with Barry Zito, the former major league pitcher, the former Cy Young Award winner, whose new book is Curveball, How I Discovered True Fulfillment After Chasing Fortune and Fame. And I've already said uh, how impressive it is um, that, that you really confront and spell out your demons here in this book in a way that I haven't seen in a sports memoir from a significant figure on the landscape of sports, maybe since Andre Agassi's groundbreaking memoir, Open, which I think was published mm. now 10 years ago. Um, and one of the things you talk about is how you dealt with sudden fortune and sudden fame when you were a young pitcher after winning the Cy Young Award and only your second full season. Looking back now at that guy almost two decades ago, who was he? What? How did he understand his place in the world? Yeah, well, I was raised, you know, I think a lot of times we go back and we see how do we see the world and that does shape how we deal with our environment as we grow and become adults. But, you know, I was always told by my parents, you know, and they had the best of intentions, but, you know, that you're special and you're not like the rest of the kids and, you know, you, there's just something special about you. And and so as I had big success early in my career there with the Oakland A's, I started to believe it because then I saw other people cheering my name and there was this adoration happening around me and there was no sense of really gratitude for all of this. It was always ingrained into me that, Hey, you're working hard. You've focused on this goal. You're thinking the right way. And this is what happens. You can actually dictate your circumstances when you focus on the right things in the right way. And so the lack of gratitude really is, is was, that was the problem. Is anybody capable of gratitude in the moment like that, though? I, I mean, you were around a lot of great players for a long time and athletes from other sports. Um, you know, don't you have to keep pushing yourself? And if you, if you're grateful for it, isn't it almost as if um, you don't work for it anymore, or is that the, that mm -hmm. the wrong way to look at it? No, that's great. That's a great question. I mean, I, you know, yeah, I think when you're grateful for something, I, I mean, let's be honest. Uh, I started throwing a curveball when I was seven. You know, maybe other kids didn't start till they were 10 or 11. But I, I worked hard at pitching, you know, my whole life, and like so many other kids do. I, I don't know why I ended up getting to where I did or winning Cy Young and other kids don't. So in the real world, if, if we're being real with ourselves, do we really control all of that? I mean, is hard work and focusing on goals really going to guarantee the success? I mean, I could tell you that it would uh, when I was having success myself, but when things started turning sour, I was working just as hard, if not harder. I was focusing on the right things twice as much, and it still wasn't happening. And so that's when I realized that actually my worldview, something was not adding up to reality. And, and that's when a lot of change started to take place in my life. And one of the dirty secrets about any uh, line of work, and, and we tell we tell young people, you know, if you work hard, as you say, and you dedicate yourself and you're committed and you deny yourself certain things, you're setting yourself up for success. But 
luck and circumstance and situational things are always a major component of it. They really are. Yeah. And those things are out of our control. And I'm certainly not saying just, you know, sit around and sit on the couch and wait for something good to happen. I I think it's a team effort. I think, you know, for me, you know, whatever you call that other side, whether it's God, whether it's luck, whether it's, you know, the powers that be, uh, you know, that that stuff has to fall into place, too. But, you know, we can only control what we control. So, you know, if we can do everything in our control, you know, have the right nutrition, you know, train as hard as you can, you know, work on your delivery. OK, now you've done your job. And if this is truly going to be your purpose, you know, and, and this plan for your life is, is what it is, then it's probably going to work out. And but if it's not. There's another plan. There's a greater plan. And for me, you know, I'm speaking now from the wisdom that I've gained personally. Is I do believe that we were either meant to do this or we weren't. Depend, you know, no matter how hard we work or not. And and there's a greater purpose. I believe. What well, What was it like? The anxiety, uh, the pressure you felt to be the Barry Zito everyone had seen you uh, become as a great pitcher, very young in the game. Yeah, I mean it was it was overwhelming. I couldn't shoulder it actually. I mean, and again, if if I had a mindset or really something taught to me as a child that, you know, there baseball is not the most important thing in my life. You know, my father made baseball so important that he was telling my sisters, "Don't talk to Barry today. He's starting." You know, and when I was 12 years old, he's saying that. So, <laughs> baseball is literally my god. And so, you know, when when I'm sitting there having to justify, you know, the Cy Young and do it again, uh, I felt immense pressure. You know, I was taking credit for all of my success. And again, no gratitude. So I, it was all because of me. And so now because of me, how do I repeat this? And, and eventually I just got crushed under the weight of, of that pressure. In reading your story, Barry, in some ways it, it reminds me of um – what Alex Rodriguez, who now works at ESPN, kind of went through when he had all this success as a young player and so many people had him uh, pegged as the future of the game. And then he signs an enormous contract, uh, strangely enough, exactly twice as much money as you signed for, 252 versus 126. And then he goes to the Texas Rangers, and it's not what he expected. And the kid that everybody loved in Seattle is now – being blamed in some ways for the Rangers' failure to compete the way they had competed before, and things kind of spiral in a bad way for him in Texas, and and, and he looks for an exit, and he ends up in New York. Um, you signed that $126 million contract with the Giants, and, uh, and, and all of a sudden, um, you're not just uh, this great young pitcher that everybody loves. There are expectations that come with that. Absolutely. And, you know, you know, he who makes, you know, a lot of money has a lot of responsibility. Of course, we know that uh, in any walk of life. But uh, for me, you know, I I went over there and, and at that point, my career had been kind of slowly diminishing over the few years in Oakland. And so I was trying to compensate in other ways, right? So I was trying to go out and in the nightlife in Hollywood and the off seasons and, you know, try to be relevant there and, you know, trying to really make up for the fact that I just wanted to really pitch good on the mound. But since I was having a tougher time and then going to San Francisco, you know, I was trying to make up for it in other ways. And so when that contract finally came, I kind of saw that as a way to boost my, you know, importance in the world 
instead of just say, again, I don't really know why that contract happened. I, I don't take responsibility for that. I'm just throwing this ball the best I can, and I hope great things happen. And again, I, it was, you know, it became a situation where I was only trying to justify the money every five days. You know, great intentions to try to prove that I'm worth it, but you know, I felt like if I didn't throw a complete game shutout that I was failing. And and that was a heavy burden to carry for many years. The Giants uh, get to the postseason in 2010, and your manager, Bruce Bochy, uh, says, you're not coming with us. How did that affect That's you? That's right. Yeah, that crushed me. I mean, it destroyed me. Uh, it destroyed a part of me that I'm glad is gone now. Um, but and Well, that's not gone, but my self-sufficiency, my sense of I can do this by myself, you know, I, I tried to bullhead my way through those, the contract for four years and came up, you know, really short. I mean, I, I pitched terribly for four years. And at the end of that fourth season, the team was going to the playoffs that I was paid to lead them to. And then I was told I couldn't play. I wasn't good enough. So I could sit and watch from the dugout as they, you know, lived their dreams, you know, going for a World Series. And they ended up winning the World Series. And, uh, you know, but when I got that news from Bochi, I came home and I called my father and I said, you know, Dad, I'm I'm thinking about quitting. This is terrible, but, you know, I need to know if you'll still love me if I quit. And, you know, his answer was, that's a terrible business decision, but of course I would still love you. And so that really forced me to, <laughs> you know, figure out what was happening on that side. And then my father actually had a stroke a few days later, went into the hospital. And so really the two things that defined me as a human being, baseball and my father, were both taken from me, which allowed immense growth, but of course a lot of pain. And this is something that's been in the headlines and people have been writing about ever since they got their first opportunity to see the book. But you talk about uh, in that postseason, um, and it seems like a natural human reaction, but something, again, we don't encounter this kind of candidness very often you admit you were rooting against your team. I was um, there. You know, it wasn't like, you know, I wasn't like going to the field with, you know, the opposing team's jerseys under mine or, you know, it was no overt kind of effort, but it was a very subtle side of me that was just really in fear that I wasn't even needed on this team anymore, yet I'm getting paid more than everybody else. And so the thing that could validate my struggling and panicking ego was if they would lose without me, and that would prove that they needed me. And, and that's just the dark place I was in. We're speaking with Barry Zito about his new book, Curveball, How I Discovered True Fulfillment After Chasing Fortune and Fame After 2010, and your team does win the World Series, and you're not part of it. How did you pick up the pieces? Yeah, well... Probably the worst experience of my life, and I've lost both parents, and so maybe this puts into perspective how important baseball was to me at that point. But, you know, being on the trolley car for the 2010 World Series parade and literally wearing these big sunglasses because all the fans were just giving middle fingers, you know, pointing me to the crotch and giving all the obscene mm. gestures you can imagine and every bad word coming off their lips. Uh, you know, for about an hour on that two miles per hour slow trolley ride through San Francisco. So, you know, and then it's me like literally crying underneath the sunglasses. So that was kind of my send off on the way back to L.A., you know, for the off season. And so I actually went back and checked myself into a 12 step program for codependency because I'd realized that I couldn't handle people around me you know, not accepting me, not thinking I was a good person or not, you know, being happy with me. And uh, that allowed me to admit, I think, for the first time that I need 
some higher power that can restore me my sanity. You know, I never was raised with any of these kind of things with, you know, having a foundation for something more important than, like I said, baseball. And so that, that opened, that cracked my head open. And, uh, you know, eight months later with the help of my wife, I found a relationship with God for the first time. I found really more importantly, living for something else beside myself. And in 2012, you contribute to another World Series championship for San Francisco. This time you were a major part of that victory coming just two years after your experience in 2010. Uh, what did that feel like? That was a complete, you know, uh, that was an experience I never envisioned that I could have with the mindset that I did, you know, being raised with the, you know, you got to be headstrong, you got to keep fighting to the death and, you know, you have to will it and it will happen. You know, I never thought I could go have success on the pitching mound if I wasn't just overly confident and ready to stuff it down their throats and kill them. And so that was a mindset that I always tried to have for years, and, and it didn't really work too often for me. Um, what did work was joy, enjoying the experience of throwing a baseball and really saying, I actually can't control what the hitter does, and I'm not going to define my success today by that. So I went into these incredible two games that really reversed the seven-year contract that was not great for me. And I had the mindset of, I'm just going to enjoy this game and you know, if I was like, you know, God, if I'm giving up 10 runs today, I actually don't even care anymore. I'm not worried about that. I just want to feel that ball come off my fingers and that, that magical feeling of that seam ripping off my, you know, my second finger on the curveball. And it really got back to that childhood appreciation for what I did. And I stopped worrying about fans loving me and redemption. And, you know, magically we had these great games and we won the World Series and, and I got redeemed, you know, but I stopped I stopped needing it, which was the ironic side about it. Barry, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us here. Jeremy, absolutely, man. Really fun. Thank you so much. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. The stars in the NBA are perhaps the biggest stars in the landscape of sports in North America and beyond. And the man who joins us now takes care of some of the most valuable and talented and gifted athletes on the planet. His name is Rob McClanahan. He's a trainer, and his new book is Network. It's a play on words. Network, two words. Training the NBA's best and finding the keys to greatness. Rob, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Jeremy. I really appreciate it. Rob, you played uh, at Syracuse. You were a walk-on at Syracuse 20 years ago. You're 40 years old now. W what led you into training? Yeah, I mean, it's a valid question. It's a big reason I wrote this book because uh, I get questioned every day. You know, why do these guys trust you? This guy from Rhode Island, walk-on. And I get it, right? <laughs> it's a pretty valid question. Uh, I don't know. You know, I think it started, you know, I used to work myself out all the time in high mm -hmm. school in Rhode Island, things like that. But then when I really got to Syracuse and saw – you know, Mike Hopkins is one one of my mentors. You know, with the workout stuff and and, and just the way he would be working out, guys like Jason Hardy, Todd Thomas, and you know, six a.m. and getting in and sweating and, and banging. I really enjoyed it, and and it was I didn't even know you know development was kind of like that. And then after I graduated, I um, I coached with Seth Greenberg for a year in South Florida, and then I went on to intern at IMG Academy when the basketball academy was just starting yep. every summer because I was a teacher in Rhode Island and. Uh, I was amazed that you could actually work guys out for a living. It's kind of cool, you know. And uh, you know, I just assumed it was, 
you know, the NBA teams, you know, the coaches that were doing it, but there wasn't in the offseason. And uh, sort of working out kids, quite honestly, just 12-year-old, 14-year-old kids in Rhode Island, and kind of grew from there. And I got into ABCD camp and all that stuff. So it kind of just, just happened. I mean, it wasn't really someone I looked up to, and it was a template for because it, it didn't exist really when I was, you know, 24, 24 25. We're speaking with Rob McClanahan, the trainer to the NBA stars, among them Steph Curry, who wrote the foreword to his new book, Network, Training the NBA's Best and Finding the Keys to Greatness. Kevin Durant, Kevin Love, Derek Rose, Russell Westbrook. Um, so you're dealing with some of the biggest stars in the game, obviously. You know, what happens when you don't have time for somebody who's not a big star? Do they take it personally? Um, yeah, it's only happened a few times in, 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 because I've really tried to make time for for even the non-stars because, uh, you know, I've seen a lot of guys that, you know, weren't all-stars. I mean, Steph Curry was an all-star for four years, you know, and now look at him. So I, I always like the, the so-called underdog, and, and I actually like just – watching anybody get better. Um, so, you know, my whole philosophy has always been you treat Kevin Durant like you would treat a G League guy. You know, it's the same workout, really. It's just maybe Kevin, you know, obviously does it better. So, um, yeah, th- th- there's been times, you know, there might be some hurt feelings, but oh, no, I try to, I try to, you know, treat everyone the same, really, whether he's 12 years old or Kevin Durant, honestly. How much is the workout about specific things each guy is trying to achieve and how much is just uh, a template for general success in basketball? Yeah, I mean, every guy is definitely and obviously different. Um, so I go into the mindset every year, every offseason, let's, you know, let's add maybe these two things to the to your game. Um, mm-hmm. But also my big philosophy is let's continue to work on your strengths. I think a lot of players, that, especially at a young age, they always work on their weaknesses, right, and they're not really what they're good at. And I think as you climb up to Division One and then NBA, um, you, know, you, you really have to figure out what you're good at. And in the NBA, you really got to be great at one thing to really last in the NBA. Hmm. Um, so, so with me, you know, Steph Curry is an example of, you know, just because he's a great shooter, right, doesn't mean you stop getting better at that, right? You know, let's go, let's let's go from fifty one percent maybe to fifty three percent. You know, so let's focus on really what you're good at and, and continue to work on your you know quote unquote weaknesses. But uh, I think you can improve, you know, at the things that are already you know, been great at for a long time. But yeah, there's definitely a template. I think this day and age, Jeremy. I mean, you know, there's no more like big man drills. You know, you're not really doing a lot of that stuff anymore. Mm. So it's actually changed a lot since I started doing this. You know, now. A few summers ago, you know, I worked out Brooke and Robin Lopez, and we shot a lot of three-pointers, you know, and I did that pre-draft in 08, and it was everything in the post, or the elbow, the most, you know. So the game has changed. The game has changed, and, I, you know, it's just funny how I've worked at Brooke and Robin, and then we're 20 years old, and now they're, let's say, 30 or something, 10, you know, 12th year in the league, and we're working on threes, and Brooke goes in and <laughs> one of the best three-point shooters in Milwaukee, and he goes from making a minimum to – I think for fifty-two million or something, you know. So, this day and age has definitely changed uh, for the players, and therefore for me, you know, you have six-nine point guards, you have six-nine centers. You know, if Draymond Green's playing center, you know, so I, I have to adapt to that a lot as well. We're speaking with Rob McClanahan, the trainer to the NBA's best players. His new book is Network: Training the NBA's Best and Finding the Keys to Greatness. And you know. You're working these guys hard. Um, as everybody knows, their health means so much, not only to themselves and their families, but to the franchises. 
basketball is the sport in which arguably, you know, a single great talent can make the biggest difference, make the biggest impact, change everything. With that in mind, I mean, it, it must be, um, it must be nerve wracking at times when you see a guy hurt himself while you're working him out. Where, you know, it's just every injury could have such big consequences. Right. Uh, right. and you've got to, you've got to, um, you've got to manage that fine line between getting everything you want and not working a guy out too much where he could get himself hurt. How do you manage that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, something I had to really learn early on. Um, you know, and I got definitely got better at it as, as I continue to do this, but, um, you know, I got lucky early on. My first major group was Rose, Westbrook, and K-Love, and they worked out together every day. And these are three of the hardest workers I've ever seen in my life. Mm-hmm. So uh, one thing I had to do with them was turn them down. And I've always said I'd rather turn a guy down than turn them up. But, um, you know, there were times I had to say, listen, I'm giving the weekend off, not because I'm lazy. It's because I want to be able to go hard Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday next week. So, And I want your body to recover. And it's still... You know, June. Let's say you know you playing. You just played eighty-two games. You played maybe ninety games. We played the playoffs. So um, every play is different the way you approach it. But you know, the, the days off, I always say, is is part of the training. That's that's actually part of the schedule. Your days off. And with me, I I go an hour. I'm very efficient. Now it's not an easy hour, but it's very efficient. It's all game stuff. Some guys like Kevin Durant doesn't even want a water break, so he might be done in fifty minutes. Um, but yeah, uh, it's it's an efficient workout. Everything's game stuff. There's no gimmicks. You won't see me with 15 chairs out there and 10 cones. And uh, it's, you know these workouts have changed a little bit over time. But I, I still stick to game stuff. Uh, but a quick quick story about Russell. I gave him a Sunday off one time, and he, and he really wanted to work out on Sunday. I said, "We, we can't go. You need a day <laughs> off. We've been going hard for three weeks." He goes, "All right, you're right, you're right." So an hour later, I get a call from uh, a guy up at UCLA. He said, "Your boy's up here working out." I'm like, "Who?" <laughs> Russell with his father. I'm like, oh god, you know. So some guys you just so can't it's stop, a compulsion for some guys. It is. I mean, like people yeah, who it. have to run six miles every day, a 10k every day, regardless, because it's right. more about the mental benefits and the you know the endorphins than it is about the benefits from the workout physically. Yes, yes, definitely. Um, yeah, that, that's like kind of their their drug, you know. It's something they they just need to have and work out every every day. And uh, you know, KD is another great example. I mean, this this guy would he fly him in all the time, you know, during the season. We work out in season, and mm-hmm. you know, we did a Nike tour in Europe a few years back. It was four cities. It was like Barcelona, Paris, Milan, and Rome. You think you know, take vacation, chill out, but no, I had to go with him because he wanted to work out every day. And we 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 literally went every day. So it wasn't like we got over there and like oh, let's just chill out. No. But that's why they're great. And, and, you know, I always say, do those few workouts change your career? No. But if you add those up and you sprinkle them in over the course of 10 years, yeah, those those really do add up. And and that's why, listen, that's why these plays are great. It's not, it's not a coincidence. He is the man the stars turn to to make them superstars. His name is Rob McClanahan, and his new book is Network, Training the NBA's Best and Finding the Keys to Greatness. Rob, it's always a pleasure to hear a Rhode Island accent on this show. Thank you for having joined us. <laughs> I love us. it. Thanks, Jeremy. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Any kid who ever had a baseball glove or a softball glove knows that it is much more 
than just some leather stitched together. It represents something in a way that few objects can. And that relationship between ourselves and our baseball gloves is the subject of a new book by Professor David Jenneman. He is the dean of the Honors College at the University of Vermont. And his new book is The Baseball Glove, History, Material, Meaning, and Value. And Dave, uh, thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks, Jeremy. It's great to be on with you. I got I to gotta tell you, I'm jealous uh, because I, I think this is just a, a tremendous idea. Uh, the execution, terrific as well. But it, a, a tremendous idea because the glove is one of those objects. And as everybody knows, the last 15 years in the publishing industry, there have been objects that have become the subjects of books and dissertations. And we try to find uh, meaning in the universe through uh, whether it's salt or something else. Uh, but the glove does have this unique place in our hearts and our souls, particularly as Americans. Um, what, what does the glove mean? Oh, my goodness. I, I think that's what I, I loved about working on this book uh, so much is that the more I, I looked into the cultural history of the glove, the more meanings it took on. Uh, so when I started... Uh, I expected that what I'd discover is what I had always understood about the history, that when players adopted baseball gloves in the later part of the 19th century, that they were teased for being unmanly or for being sissies. Um, and while I certainly found a lot of that rhetoric in the historical material, what I also found was a lot of dialogue about um, how it was changing the competitive nature of the game, how uh, it could be used as uh, uh, an economic item, um, how it uh, was you know, making the game either better or worse. Uh, and it really became a, a, a book about how a single item um, represented a lot of ideas America has about itself with regard to industry, with regard to ritual, with regard to, to masculinity and gender. Um, and it, it, it ended up uh, being a book about as much about what we think of ourselves as it was about a piece of equipment. We're speaking with Dave Jenneman about his new book, The Baseball Glove, History, Material, Meaning, and Value. And why, why do we feel this connection um, with a glove, for instance, in a way that we don't with, you know, our, our pair of spikes or cleats or or our bat, although I guess in the age of the aluminum bat, the bat has some meaning, too, and they have uh, they last longer. But but what is it about the glove and the feeling that someone has when they when they hold a glove that is truly theirs? I, you know, it's funny. I think it it is the. Uh, you know, there, there's some of it that has to do with the, the passing of generational knowledge. So if you think of uh, who gave you your first glove, it was likely a parent or a grandparent. Um, and and they probably had a story uh, of, of their own first glove. And so there's a way in which, you know, uh, uh, historical memory gets passed down with it. Uh, there's also this sense in which the breaking in of a glove uh, is, becomes a, 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 a ritual celebration of the game. Um, but when I talk to people about the book, uh, 
uh, and told him what I was writing about, inevitably I would get a story from mm-hmm. someone. And everyone I talked to had a different take on why the glove was, was meaningful to them. Uh, and every one of them uh, had a story about where their, their glove was or their father's glove or their mother's glove in some cases uh, was in their house um, and or how it had gone missing and how it was this, this big hole in their life to not have this thing anymore. We're speaking with Dave Jenneman again about his book, The Baseball Glove. And the glove uh, does occupy this kind of mythic place in our society. And it's, you know, it's it's um, an essential tool when you're playing the national pastime. And baseball is uh, poetic uh, and its connection to us as a country, as a a uh, frontier country and a country of immigrants and a, a rural country that's been urbanized. The baseball is a prism through which we see so much of American history. Uh, is the glove just a uh, a component of that? Is it is it is it just part of that kind of myth of America that we think of when we think of baseball? Um, it's certainly a metaphor for it, Jeremy. Uh, I think that one of the things I was I was curious about was how a lot of the rhetoric uh, about masculinity was uh, uh, getting codified in the late 19th century by people like Teddy Roosevelt, uh, who gave a speech called The Manly Virtues and Practical Politics. Um, and it's at that moment that the glove is also coming onto the scene in baseball. And if you look at how the glove is being talked about and um, you know the the idea that you would uh, just simply uh, take the punishment of baseball without having this piece of protective equipment um, and then map it on to some of the things people were saying in the political register about what the manly qualities of Americans were um, they 're one and the same uh, and so uh, I thought it was fascinating to see how um, these two things the one seemingly insignificant a baseball glove and the one having to do with how America was fashioning itself as a world power were um, analogous to one another. In today's America, where baseball has become increasingly a sport that requires um, a certain amount of affluence, or it doesn't require, but we see that um, even in a sport where the equipment isn't supposed to be very expensive, the kids who get expensive coaching and the kids who can expo- afford expensive equipment like high-end gloves and high-end bats and who can afford to travel, um, to play at the top level. You know, is the glove also now becoming a metaphor for um, for the ways in which baseball isn't accessible the way it used to be? Uh, certainly. And so – one of the interesting things about about baseball gloves is that although it represents a um, distinctly American object and an American's piece of sporting equipment, um, only something like two tenths of of one percent of all baseball gloves are manufactured here, and the ones that are manufactured in America start at about two hundred dollars and go up from there um, so while it 's possible to buy an inexpensive baseball glove um, if you 're buying one that has the cachet of being an American glove you 're essentially committing to a pretty expensive proposition to play the game uh, and one of the things I track in the book is how players in other countries um, have taken on a lot of the ingenuity that we saw in the early days of the baseball glove where, where players were essentially inventing them out of things that 
preexisted, um, and doing that now. So I talk about how Mariano Rivera um, uh, relates a story of fashioning a glove out of a cardboard box. And uh, in Japan, after World War II, players would make gloves out of fish skins. So, mm. so that kind of uh, uh, ingenuity that we often associate with you know, a certain American quality is being picked up as other countries around the world pick up baseball. Is there a single glove that occupies um, an honored place in, in baseball history that, that is kind of the glove? I don't know that there's a single glove, uh, but certainly um, I think the, uh, the, the, the glove that Wilson developed in the 1950s, the A2000, mm. uh, is really uh, indicative of, of a transformation in, in both the glove and the game. So if you look at gloves prior to the 1940s, 1950s, they kind of look like a human hand as if the human hand was a big pillow. Um, you know, they've, they've got recognizable fingers, but the fingers are separated. Uh, they might have a rudimentary webbing. Uh, and in the 19, 1950s, Wilson uh, took that thing that looked like a human hand, turned it about 45 degrees on its axis, and created the glove that we know today. Mm-hmm. You can still buy an A2000 in the sporting goods store. Um, and it really transformed the, the nature of, of what the glove was all about. Glove has made a big difference, and the glove is the subject of Dave Gentleman's new book, The Baseball Glove, History, Material, Meaning, and Value. Dave, thanks so much for joining us here in The Sporting Life. Hey, thanks, Jeremy. It was great talking to you. Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Schapp, and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern Time.